You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit Providence. We are going to be in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. If you didn't bring a hard copy of the Bible, but you would like a hard copy, there should be one under a seat Um, somewhere around you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures, we just invite you to take that one home as a gift from us. We would love for you to have access to the Bible at your own home. So this morning, we are going to be in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. So when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 5, it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence Community Church, especially if it's your first time. We just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. Hope you guys enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. I know I did. That's a delight. I think that's probably why most of you are here, right? You're going to be at the 1045. So you're like, might as well go now, you know? Um, I'm just kidding. So we've been working through the book of Jonah, as Lauren mentioned, and we are right at the tail end. So we have two sermons left, including this week, uh, to finish out the book of Jonah. And last week, what we looked at was God asking Jonah or questioning Jonah about his anger. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And we talked a little bit about anger, the danger that anger presents. And now this morning, what we're going to do is talk about the second half to that story, because it really doesn't end there with that question. God then tells a real life parable. um, And by that, I mean, he basically creates a parable in the life of Jonah and then explains that parable to him uh, and asks him a a series of questions again, or really the question reframed. And so this week we get to get to the second half of that amazing story, but before we jump in, I'd love to pray and ask the Spirit to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I will pray for us. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving, as your word says, that we might enter your courts with with praise. We come before you humbly. We are grateful that You have preserved your word for all of this time, that it is inerrant, that it is true, that all wisdom comes from you, my God. We thank you that you've opened up this book that we might hear from you. And so we ask now, would you tenderize our hearts? Would you help to distract us from the distractions? 
and help us to hear from you in this Solomon sacred moment. Help us to know that you are active and engaged. Your mercy is extended to us. Help us to not only know it, but to experience it in truth. Holy Spirit, we submit to you now, not to grieve you, but to to hear and to listen, even in the staleness of our hearts, it's so easy to happen over the course of weeks and months and years. We listen for you and we ask, my God, that you might do the encouraging, that you might do the sharpening, that you might do the convicting, the comforting that we also desperately need, even if we don't know it. We ask, my God, that you would do that this morning through the power of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to read through this text again and then kind of give you the big overview before we get into the details. So this, remember, we're coming on the back end of the half of the story after Jonah gets asked, do you, well, do, you do well, Jonah, to be angry? Then there's this real-life parable that gets set up. So verse 5 says, Jonah went out to the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So the first thing that we get is that Jonah kind of, uh, after the question from God, uh, makes his way outside the city, sets up a tent for himself still in the hopes that God might smoke this town. That's really what it is. He's still kind of hoping, like, maybe I got through to God here, and maybe he might finish these people off like they deserve. And so he sits down underneath his booth and sees what will become of the city. I think this is interesting because God has already informed him of what will become of the city because he's already extended mercy to the city, and Jonah didn't like it. But Jonah's kind of hoping that maybe something's going to work and turn in his favor here. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant, And made it come up over Jonah so that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of that plant. Okay, so just to give a a feel for this, you're talking about the Iraqi desert, maybe 125 degrees heat. You know, it's hot. And so God appoints this plant to kind of come over his booth and shade his head from the heat. And it says that Jonah's really glad about this. And I kind of feel, I understand Jonah, all right? I would be glad too. And then the story goes on. Verse 7, and when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed, notice these are all appointments of God, okay, you keep hearing that word, this is the sovereignty of God. Once again, like in chapter 2, he's wielding creation for his purposes to play out this real life parable that he's, te- that he's teaching, not just to Jonah, but to us. God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked God and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Now, Jonah's miserable. He's so miserable that he just cries out to God to kill him. And I just want to make a note here. I identify with what kind of madness comes when it's too hot. I mean, we're from Houston. I don't don't know why the Lord decided this would be the place, my allotted dwelling place. I hate it. I hate the heat. I love many things about our town. The heat and humidity is not one of them, okay? Okay. Like when girls sunbathe, what are you doing? It doesn't make sense to me. And I, my wife does that. I'm going to lay out. That sounds terrible. That I've reminded of a rotisserie chicken. You know, that's what I think. Just burning your flesh. Like, okay, it sounds great. You know, the medical implications are great for you too. Doesn't work for me. I don't like it. Okay, so when Jonah is like extreme here, what seems to be extreme. I didn't mean to offend you girls, by the way. If you're a tanner, keep tanning. Okay, do your thing. Just not for me, as you can see with my complexion. But I, I understand him. He's like, he's a little bit crazed by the heat, all right? And he cries out to God, it'd be better for you to kill me. Now, of course, I mentioned this last sermon. We're finally here. 
it's, it's a comical moment, I think, okay, maybe it's because I'm a masochist, but this interaction here is hilarious to me. Um, he says in verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, here's the key. This is the new, the new part to the question. For that plant? And it's almost like Jonah knows he's being taught something, but doesn't, is not interested in the lesson right now which I really identify with when you're sweating and hot and you're dying in the heat. And so, so, you know, you're about to go to your lecture with the Lord. His response is gold to me. <laughs> and he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So it's like, I'm mad enough to pray to you to kill me. That's how mad I am. And then, of course, we get the Lord's answer. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't even know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Okay, so the, the parable's being set up, and it's real life. Jonah's living this, but it's here to teach. And there's characters in this parable, and we have to see. And God, God does us a favor here. He does us a solid by giving us exactly what he means. A lot like when Jesus would tell parables to the disciples, they would ask him later, and he would tell them what each part of the parable actually represented. That's what God's doing here for Jonah. So what do we get? We get Jonah, we get the plant, we get the worm, and we get scorching wind and heat. Those are the elements of the parable, the real life parable. And the comparison is that God is taking the place of Jonah. Nineveh is the plant. Sin, or Satan and sin, is the worm. And the wrath of God is the scorching wind and heat. This is kind of the, the parable that God's telling. And so the main idea is this, Jonah, you found pity in your heart for the plant that you didn't even labor over. You didn't plant the seed, you didn't water it, you didn't cause it to grow. It grew up in a night, it rose quickly, and then it died in a night, and it died quickly. But you're angry at me for pitying Nineveh, a city that's filled with image bearers whom I created and labored over, not just for all of their lives, but for the lifetime of Nineveh, which we talked about in the beginning of this series, that Nineveh was a city that was founded in Genesis 10, so it's a long time God's labored over this city. And he tells Jonah, you're mad at me because I extend mercy to them. And yet you want to show mercy to the plant. I've been laboring that this city might flourish over centuries. You didn't even labor for this plant. And you're, you're pitying the plant. The general call from this text is something like, we have to not fall prey to extending mercy exclusively to those whom we've deemed deserve mercy. Because the definition of mercy is getting what we, not getting what we do deserve. That's what mercy is. When a judge shows mercy on a criminal, he's not giving them what they would deserve, but extending to them what they don't. Does this make sense? And so if we look at anyone in our lives and say, well, I would love to extend mercy to them, but they just don't deserve it, well, that's the point of mercy. And God's kind of engaging with Jonah about this. He's saying that we ought to mirror our God in this fallen world and extend mercy. In short, he's really teaching him the lesson, which is the famous text, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the, that's the lesson. Now, I think there's a big theme here also that we should be keen to, and then I want to get into some of the maybe details that I think are very helpful. But there's a big theme here, which is that God has a way here, have you guys noticed this throughout four chapters, of teaching Jonah through his life. So real things happen to a real man, hardship, difficulty, triumph, all of these things. But God's teaching lessons here to Jonah through all of it. And simultaneously, God's weaving this guy's life in such a way that greater global purposes would happen through his life. 
So there's a number of things that God does. I'm, you know, commonly I'll say something like, you know, when God does one thing, he does a million things. I do believe that that's true. You could see the evidence of that here. God's intent is to save the biggest city in the world, which is Nineveh, and he does it through Jonah, but he's also intent on teaching Jonah what it looks like to be given mercy and then extend it. It's both individual and corporate, and this is true for us. We need to consider this. When God does a thing in your life, it's so that he might do a thing in others' lives too. It's not just for you, it's for others, and it's not just for others, it's for you. And we can fall into a trap on either side. Either we think our entire life is God using us like a tool and instrument in his hands, and he's never actually loving us like a father, or on the flip, he's only loving us like a father, and he's never intent on using us to actually reach out to our neighbor. Does this make sense? That's what we're learning here with Jonah. God has been wielding creation itself throughout the entire book to teach Jonah something and also to accomplish a global purpose. Okay, so I want to consider this story from Jonah. I want to consider two major points. I want to talk about mercy, and I want to talk about self-pity because we see them both, and they're major themes here, and they're, they're interconnected. So let's start with mercy. What does the nature of this interaction teach us about the character of God? And there's much to be said, but I want to focus on God being a merciful father. That's probably the highlight. Verse 10 says this, You pity the plant for which you did not labor over, which you did not cause to grow. It came up in one night, and it perished in a day. Jonah, you didn't work for this. You didn't cause this plant to be fruitful. You didn't patiently engage for years. Now, what does that tell us about God? What is he saying implicitly, not explicitly? He's not just going after Jonah. He's telling you something about himself, and it's this. God is so merciful that he has labored over people who have made it their intention to live apart from him, and they've made that intention known since the very beginning. God has been intent, even if you are unsure whether you believe in God or you're sure that you don't believe in God or worship him or trust him, he has made it his intentions known to pursue and engage and love you and extend mercy to you since you were born. And that that's been true since the garden, he's been pursuing mankind in this way. God's not just, he's not just attacking Jonah, he's trying to teach Jonah about himself. He says, you pity this thing you didn't labor over and I'm extending mercy on things I've been working on for a long time. So the Bible goes something like this. God creates us in his own image and likeness. That's kind of how it starts. And we have a purpose, and that purpose is that we would glorify God, expanding his, this tangible reality of God's dominion over the earth. And then he also creates us in such a way that we're dependent creatures. So God doesn't only give us this glorious purpose, but he gives us this glorious purpose, and then he weaves us in such a way that we can't do it without him and without each other. We know this, okay, because we're creatures and he's creator. We're dependent on him, but we also know it because he looks at man and says, it's not good that man would be alone. So he gives us a partnership together that we might fulfill this dominion, fulfill this calling together. Now, he's so merciful, merciful and his mercy is so inexhaustible that despite the fact that our first parents sang out their rebellion in the garden, and that has been ringing out since the beginning of time, he has continued since that day to pursue us, to engage with us, and to bless us despite all of those things. Really, after Genesis 3, what you get is God constantly engaging with fallen people who really have no intention of worshiping him or knowing him, and him continuing to insert himself to love them. This is what you get with Noah and saving him from the flood. This is what you get with Abram and his call. This is what you get with Joseph going to Egypt and becoming second to Pharaoh. This is what you get with Moses taking the children of Israel out of Egypt. It's what you get with Joshua marching around Jericho and finding 
victory in the promised land. I can continue on. This is what God is doing in the life of humankind. He's engaging and pursuing us. Now, in case you question this fact, you you need to remember what the Bible teaches us about our own existence being dependent. Apart from the mercy of God engaging in our lives every single day, it's not that things would just become chaotic. I want you to hear me. It's not that things would just get a little worse. The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. Apart from the mercy of God, you would not just have a bad day where you spilled your coffee. Apart from the mercy of God, we would cease to exist. That's the kind of mercy we're talking about. God holds us together. God keeps us living. No matter how hard you and I have had it, and I know some of your stories and you've had very difficult times. I've had some of those. However, no matter how hard each of us have, we feel that we've had it, it's impossible for us to overestimate the amount of mercy we've experienced on a daily basis from a God who loves us. He has shown you over the course of your life more mercy than you could ever imagine. And I say this to you, even if you currently reject God entirely, he's still been doing that for you because he loves you. I think this is a great primer, this text for Thanksgiving season, because, you know, once a year we get together and we eat a ton, we glut, and then thank God for it. But I want to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving. If God gave us eyes to see the spiritual realities of our existence, we would fall on our faces and thank him. Moment by moment, he's been preserving you. If you just saw the spiritual realities of what's really going on. And I say that because we have another element of the story here, which is the worm. The worm that eats this plant in the story and destroys represents Satan who's sowing sin into the plant, or sowing destruction. It represents Satan who's sowing sin into Nineveh. And it represents a worm that's sowing sin into our lives, Satan. At every opportunity, Satan desires to decay you from the inside. And that's not just personal, it's corporate. It's not just you as an individual. It's your community, it's your church, it's your town, it's your family. It's your relationship with your kids. It's nations, whole nations, the worms trying to sow seeds of discord. Now I want to ask this question. Could you even imagine how often the Lord has mercifully stayed the worm's hand in your life? See, we get certain texts that kind of make you pause. Here's one of them. Jesus talks to Peter the night before his denial and says, Peter, Satan has asked me that he might sift you like wheat. And I don't know if that makes you pause, but I'm like, what? So that means Satan's talking to the Lord Jesus about you and me and trying to make deals about how bad can I make it for them? How often do you think that that the Lord Jesus has said no? I'm going to tell you how often, way more than you could ever imagine. The book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it should be kicked up behind me, but listen to what Peter says about Satan. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, well, who's that? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, tons of things here that I don't have time to cover, but let's just focus on the big portions. He's always prowling around, it's regular, and he's seeking out someone to do what to them? To have dinner with them? To, to, you know, have a conversation about how, you know, God's been really mean. No, to destroy and to devour, to consume you. You see, the worm lives off the plant. The worm eating the plant is the way it survives. It's the way it grows. The, Satan has no other way except to destroy and devour you. What was part of the curse for the serpent? He would lose his legs and he would go upon his belly and he would eat what? The dust of the earth. What were you made of? 
to devour you up, devour you, eat you. And here's the thing about the worm that's so scary. It is almost imperceptible to the naked eye, right? How do I know this? Notice when Jonah laments, he doesn't lament that the worm did this. He just laments that the thing was destroyed. He only saw the effect. He didn't see the worm itself. Now think about this with Nineveh. He only saw the effects of sin. He didn't actually recognize that Satan was behind the destruction in Nineveh itself. So he couldn't have mercy on these people. He only saw their behavior. You see, Satan and sin feed on image bearers, and that's what they've been doing since the beginning of time. Now, thankfully to God, the worm is limited in his power. And more importantly, God is constantly acting to preserve our lives, protect us, and even extend mercy to us when we cooperate with the worm knowingly. Now, if you think back on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually tells the disciples that they were going to be the salt of the earth, the preservative meaning that we would now join him in this kingdom purpose of preserving and protecting others, our neighbors, and caring for them, extending compassion to them, joining him on the, on the very thing he's been laboring for since the beginning. And I think that by using this worm and plant analogy, that yeah, that should hearken you back as a Christian to, where else do you see these plant garden analogies? Oh, the very beginning starts in a garden. Adam's called to, be, to tend this garden to cause this garden to flourish, to help his wife Eve. Adam fails at this, of course, but what do we have in Christ? In Christ, we see the gardener that Adam was meant to be. Have you ever wondered why Mary shows up to the garden tomb and what does she mistake Jesus for? A gardener. It's a replaying of the scene in the Garden of Eden where Adam and his wife Eve have failed. Here comes Mary to play the role of Eve and who does she see but the Lord Jesus and mistakes him for a gardener. You see, Jesus shows up to begin tending the fields that you and I have abandoned, namely our own and namely our neighbors. We have joined in with our father Cain in some ways by saying, am I really my brother's keeper? Why should I know where Abel is after we murdered him? This is what Jonah's doing with Nineveh. What have I to do with these Ninevites, these Assyrian pagan monsters? Am I my brother's keeper? He doesn't even consider them brothers. John chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. Listen to how Jesus speaks of the Father's work. Now, they're mad at Jesus, as they typically are, the Pharisees, uh, because he was working on the Sabbath. Listen to Jesus' response to them. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, miracles, healing people on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. Listen to this. My Father is working until now, and I am working This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was making himself God, his own father, and making himself equal with God. Jesus' view of the father is that since the beginning, he's been laboring over something and that Jesus showed up to be the second Adam to join in that labor as our first Adam was meant to do. Now, the question we have to ask is, what kind of work is Jesus doing to join his father? Now, I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus was a carpenter. For the first 29 years of his life, that's what Jesus did with his earthly father. He built stuff. And then in year 30, after the only story we really get from his uh, teenage years or being 12 years old was that he told his earthly father, did you not know that I'd be in my father's house, my heavenly father? Jesus joins his heavenly father in his heavenly ministry on earth in, at the age of 30. And what is it? 
Well, in the same way that he's been building with his earthly father until 30, he starts his earthly ministry to build with his heavenly father. It's extending mercy and grace to a fallen world that's around him, reversing curses, reversing the curse of sin, healing, preaching the kingdom, doing things even on the Sabbath. Why? To communicate that God's been laboring over humankind since Genesis, and now he has sent the one who's going to do the perfect work, the perfect labor on behalf of all humanity. And in so doing, what he's going to do is not just absolve us of our guilt, not just extend us grace, but then he's going to recruit us to be mercy extenders, which is really what Jonah's missing here, right? All right. You see, Jesus was trying to teach the Pharisees that obviously they needed what he was offering, but they were so busy trying to basically kill him that they couldn't see that. Now, what about self-pity? And I have a little bit of time to do this, but I think it's maybe the most important thing here. So the first thing we get is God's merciful. That Right now, where you sit, no matter what you've done, God's intention and God's desire is to extend mercy to you. And you may think that that's extreme. You may think that you might not even need it. It's the very thing that we all need, and he loves you. Well, what about what I've done? That's why Nineveh is a great parable for you, because they did awful things. Okay. Now, self-pity. The second important observation in this real-life parable is that God juxtaposes himself against Jonah again. And he says, we're both pitying, but we're pitying for different reasons. God says, I pity Nineveh, and you pity the plant. Now, what's the deal there? Jonah pities the plant for one reason alone. It was useful to him, and then it was no longer useful. (laughs) It shaded his head, and then it died. And he's like, why plant? You know, But he doesn't really care about the plant. He cares about his head. And so he's upset. Now, God juxtaposes Jonah with himself because why does God pity Nineveh? Nineveh is lost, and they are harmful to everyone around them. They are murderous people. And yet God feels compassion for Nineveh, even though he is the primary one offended. It's not to his benefit to have compassion on these people. In fact, it's to his loss. It's actually a sacrifice for him to have compassion on these people. You see, compassion that we bestow upon others when it's only extended because those people are useful to us is not real compassion. This is why Jesus taught his disciples that they were not to just love their friends, but they were to love and show compassion on who? Their enemies. This was crazy to the the Jew at the time because everyone else was the enemy. That's why there's a big problem in the book of Acts with the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, and there's all this animosity happening. And Jesus, because Jesus showed up and he basically put a big spiritual bomb in the middle of what they believed and said, no, I want you to love even your enemies. I want you to show compassion on the people who don't deserve it. Now, so what do we see here with Jonah? What I think we see here with Jonah is that he doesn't really pity the plan, he pities himself. He doesn't really pity the plan, he pities his own circumstances. And Jonah's been doing this for a while, right? Like, so just kill me, God. That's the same thing he did on the boat. Just throw me over. She kind of gets into self-despair, self-pity. Now, I want to make mention of this because I think it's important. We have all had moments where we feel sorry for ourselves, okay? Some to a deeper extent than others, okay? If you're a parent, you've probably prodded at your children and said, don't be a whiner. If you haven't, then you're a better person than me. But here's what I want to say because I'm not going to advocate that grieving is self-pity. That's just not true. Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus. Grieving is not self-pity, okay? Mourning is not self-pity. In fact, the Bible tells us we should weep with those who weep. So what is self-pity? 
Self-pity is acknowledging the sovereignty of God without recognizing the fatherhood of God. It's recognizing that God's controlling these things in your life, but he's not really, he's great, but not good. Does this make sense? God's greatness is is affirmed. His goodness is questioned. That's self-pity. Self-pity is when we grieve with no hope. Self-pity is when we grieve with no faith. Self-pity is when we don't cry out to God, we just cry out in our own commiseration. Or if we do cry out to God, it's only in despair, not for the call to rescue. And the reason for this is because self-pity is ultimately an issue of sight. It's what we see. And what self-pity does is it gives us a foggy view of God first. So there's a vertical element, and then there's a horizontal element. And when we, I'll get to the horizontal element at the end when we close. But the vertical element is the starting line. First thing that happens with self-pity is that some sort of circumstance or suffering hits us, whether it's our neighbor that we're sitting next to that we're bitter at for saying a thing they ought not have said, or whether it's a, an untimely death with someone that you love, a broken relationship, some kind of, kind of suffering hits you, and that, that gives you a foggy vision of the God himself because what you look at and what you focus on is the pain that's dulling your senses and the circumstances that are causing the pain. The best analogy of this is Peter on, walking on the water, right? You see the storms, Jesus is on the water, Peter beckons, call me to yourself, and Peter begins to walk on the water, which is miraculous. We always, in the Bible, it says Jesus walked on the water. That's not really the miracle. It's really that Peter walked on the water. That's a miracle. Jesus is Jesus, okay? It's miraculous because he was divine and human, but when Peter starts walking, you start perking your ears up. Wait a minute. You know, I picture Peter's like the chubby fisherman, you know, and now he's walking on water. I don't know if you, as a kid, ever tried to do this. Do you ever try to run real fast and anybody else? No, okay. It doesn't work, (laughs) but you guys know the story, right? Look to Jesus, and he walks on the water. Look to the waves, he sinks. That's the the highlight. So eyes on the storm, you sink. Eyes on self, eyes on the suffering, eyes on the circumstance, you sink. Eyes on the merciful Christ that can save you from the storm, you walk on the water. So when we're met with these conditions of suffering and hardship, we have to fight with all diligence to keep peering into the eyes of the merciful Savior who preserves us through the storm. That's the idea. And not to be coaxed into being drowned by focusing on the hardship itself. Because if we don't keep our eyes set on the God who rescues, then we might be like Jonah and just cry out that he'd kill you. You get this? Think about this for for Jonah. Jonah cries out to God, but not to save him, to kill him. Because his view of God has now become so small that God's greatness could kill him, but God's goodness could not save him. Are you guys catching that? The greatness of God could strike him down in a moment, but the goodness of God is not there to rescue him. Okay. Now, how does this blind you to your neighbor? This is kind of the horizontal element. We cannot see or have compassion on our neighbor because we have become confined to focus on our own circumstances and our struggles. Now, you've probably experienced this. We focus on our own ability to reason and to rationalize what's happening to us, and then we kind of get in our own little isolation bubble where we're trying to figure out how to get through this, and then we become isolated from the people around us who are hurting, and then that leads to self-pity, self-entitlement, and a lot of the, you know, everybody should know that you're really suffering, and so don't expect me to even acknowledge you as a human, and, and this is what happens. Now, the way to battle this is really simple, but here's what I want to tell you, but not easy. Those are different words. It's like, uh, it's, it's really simple to lose weight. It's not easy. Eat less, work out more. Have you ever tried it? 
we're coming up on January, right? So we're all going to try it again. And, and, and none of us really like nail it. I mean, some of you are like, yeah, speak for yourself. I do. And I love you. Okay. I'm working on bitterness in my heart. This, the answer to self-pity is really simple, not easy. So what's the simple answer? We must have faith in all circumstances that God is up to something in our lives. That he's laboring, that God's been laboring since Genesis, and you are not the exception, you're the rule. He's been working. He's not merely laboring to accomplish, listen to me, not just to accomplish something in you, but a global purpose in the whole world and through you. That means God labors with us, just like Jonah, in our life, and he does so in such a way that furthers his labor in the lives of our neighbor. That's how God works. He does something in you that's going to ultimately bless your family. He's laboring over you in a way that that might bleed over into your children. He's laboring over you in a way that that might bleed over into your coworkers. He's laboring over you in such a way that you might humanize the barista at Starbucks who's a little behind getting you your $7 coffee. We have to have faith that God's not only up to something, but that he is merciful and that he is laboring to extend that mercy to mankind. The Bible tells us that it's God's desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, come to repentance, that God's longing to extend mercy to people. That's his heart. So Jonah's up and down story is really about two things. Number one, it teaches us that God's laboring in his life to teach him experientially of his mercy. He doesn't want Jonah just to know that he's merciful. He wants to experience, he wants Jonah to experience the mercy and to know that he needs it. You see, up until the moment of the fish and the whale, you know, or the whale in the boat, he probably, Jonah didn't know he needed the mercy of God. He needs to experience what it's like to be at the bottom. Number two, God's laboring through Jonah's life to extend mercy to Nineveh. He has, Jonah has struggled to see the hand of God in this, this story the entire time, and he has continued to miss the purpose of God to extend this mercy to Nineveh. He kind of gets the mercy to him, and he thanks God in prayer for that mercy. He hasn't quite understood that the purpose was to get through Jonah to Nineveh. Now, what does that mean for us? Is that what God does for us? Well, this is my last text, and I'll close with this last thought. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is Paul speaking about suffering, which there's not probably another guy that knows it better. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Listen to what Paul says here. There's a lot of, okay, I think comfort, the word comfort is used here like 23 times in the first chapter. This is very Pauline. He just hammers it home. But listen carefully to what he's doing. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With what? How do we comfort them? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you catch that? God comforts you in your affliction that you might comfort another in their affliction with the very comfort that he offered. Jonah, I'm going to extend mercy to you so that you might be the conduit through which the mercy of God will be extended to Nineveh. And how can you do that, Jonah? Don't rely on yourself. Take the mercy I'm giving you. You don't have it. See, Jonah doesn't have the mercy, and the best thing for him to do is to recognize all I have is hatred for them. God, you're going to have to give me what I don't have. All right, let's continue. 
Verse five, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, listen, that's never on a coffee mug. Have you ever noticed that? Like this is not like, you know, go to Lifeway and you get this one to put over your mantle. But this is Paul's theology about Christ and what it means to be a Christian. We share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. But that's not the end, okay? It's not all masochistic. Listen up. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, now he's talking about himself and his fellow apostles, it is for your comfort, Corinthians, and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for what? Your comfort, Corinthians, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. There's a union. Our hope for you is unshaken. Notice the hope here. This is how you get out of self-pity. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So what's the idea? We share in the sufferings of Christ each time we hit affliction. You either suffer in Christ or you suffer apart from Christ, but there's no human experience that doesn't include the suffering. We all just need to go ahead and let that sink in. So Paul says that when we suffer in Christ, there's a union that happens with Christ that we get to know him more deeply and that part of that blessing is also that we get the comfort. We get the peace. Or as Paul later on goes on to say it, he says when we're anxious and bitter that we ought to let our requests be made known to God so that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding which will be given to us. So we suffer well when we come with hope and say, I know, God, that you're not just going to send the storm, but you're also going to send the Christ who helps me to walk on the water. Do you guys catch this? You're not just going to send the flood. You're going to send the ark that I get to get into. Christ is the ark. You guys catching this? You're not just going to send the suffering. You're going to send the preservation. That's what it looks like to not self-pity but hope. So there's really two options, and the two options are this. Either suffering and hardship is meaningless and arbitrary and bereft of the hand of God because God doesn't exist, which means that you might as well agree with Jonah and say, kill me now because this is meaningless. Or God is is right, Paul was true, and suffering is about God's purposes to draw you to himself. Suffering leads to the mercy and comfort that only Christ can offer. When we find ourselves with the sun beating down on our balding heads... It's so that Christ might come and cover and shade it, that you might experience his love and mercy for you. As Peter sees the waves, he focuses on them from the hand of God. God is sovereign. He misses that God wants to show him the mercy of Christ. So God, in his merciful nature, has always been using the fallenness of our world to fulfill his glorious purpose in you and in your neighbor. Now, where do you see this most prevalently? It's in the gospel. It's in the death and resurrection of Christ. So you see the death of Christ and the disciples are doing what you and I would have done, mourning, crying. How could he die? How could he let this happen to him? We've seen him walk through crowds. We've seen him raise the dead. How could he allow them to do this? They're mourning. And then the burial, you know, you got to think, that's just such a an awful thing to watch as they put him into a, a grave and roll a stone over it that no man can ever move. And then, of course, we get the third day, which is the resurrection. And here's Paul's theology about hardship and suffering that Jonah doesn't understand, is that you and I, just like Jonah is in this book, are real-life parables. God is leading you into the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ over and over again. 
that you might experience what all that looks like. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ, dying to self, newness of life in the resurrection of his power. This is why Paul said, I want to know Christ in what? The fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. Both. You don't get one without the other. If you just want the resurrection, but you don't want the death, you're resurrected from what? If you, if you just want the suffering, first of all, why? But let's pretend you are the masochist, right? Okay, you're the Mark de Sade or something. You just want the suffering. Death, God does not do the death thing without life. When he brings the death, he's the God of life. That's what he does. So you, get, you don't get one without the other. We're a real life parable, which means what? It means this, whatever it is that you're maybe falling into self-pity over because we all do this, you need to remember that you not only have a sovereign God who's brought this to your front doorstep or at least permitted the worm to do it. Can we agree? He's permitted the worm to do it. But also he's your father who loves you and wants to extend mercy to you in the trial. He wants to show you his goodness. He wants to reveal to you his love. He wants to bring you nearer through this, whereas the worm wants to push you further away. And so like Jonah to Nineveh, you and I become the real life parables to the world around us. Will we fall into self-pity and darken our witness? Or will we hope in God in the midst of our hardship so that the watching world might see a materialization of the gospel in our life? Death and resurrection, death and resurrection. People might say something like this to you. I've heard it said to many Christians. I don't know how you can have contentment when you're going through what you're going through. This is a real life parable for the gospel to be manifest in the lives of our neighbors. And remember this, to whom much, has been, like, to whom much uh, mercy has been given, they will extend more mercy. When you really have drink, drunken deeply from the well of grace, you'll be a great minister of grace. <laughs> and God brings us there through the hardships he permits. Okay, if you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Lord, I want to keep my prayer simple and and brief this morning. Help us as we find ourselves like Jonah, blinded to the perils of the worm, Help us, my God, to receive and experience and extend your mercy. This morning, I pray that for those under the sound of my voice who need a big, deep drink of mercy, that you would just pour out that to them. I pray, my God, for those who've harbored bitterness against their neighbor, that you would pour out to them real deep forgiveness and mercy so that they could extend it. And finally, Lord, I pray for those who are going through hardship, difficulty, whether it be relationally or in another way. Would you now, my God, reveal yourself as the, not just the great sovereign king, but the good father who loves them. Remind them of who you are And my God, cause their hearts to sing along with their mouths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.